Welcome to the DevReady podcast, where we're helping non-techs build better tech. Today, we have James Bilson joining us from Primary. James, thanks for joining us. No problem. Pleasure to be here. So, James, let's look a little bit into your background. Tell us a bit about your background history and how you probably ventured into Primary. Yeah, so I, I'm originally a builder, actually. I worked on sort of large commercial construction, and I was living in the United Kingdom, and I had to come back to Australia, my visa had run out. And so I got a bicycle and rode my bicycle back across Europe and Asia and Southeast Asia. And during that period, the World Wide Web was invented. And so as I finally got back to Australia, I'd be listening to the radio and there would be constant discussion of this uh, information superhighway. And I thought, hmm, sounds interesting. And so I was back in Melbourne with uh, nothing to do in that I'd you know, left my job in, in the UK. And a guy I worked with who was sort of a strategic marketing guy loomed on the doorstep one night and just said, this internet thing is going to be the biggest commercial change we've seen in our lives. We should get on it. And so we started a company that basically does what Deliveroo does in 1995. So you can imagine what that looked like was a sort of copy of a thing from San Francisco called Waiters on Wheels. And so we built the whole thing. We had Spark, SunSpark servers and all sorts of crazy stuff. And we sold about three pizzas. And then we realized that that was going to take a long time to produce a return. So we started selling consulting web development services. And that turned into a business that I ran and finally exited in a sale to one of the big ad agencies around 2008. Okay, well, so um, you went from product to consulting. Mm-hmm. From there, after a, a bit of a sabbatical and some sailing, I started consulting and then I ended up building primary as an embodiment of the, of the stuff that I was doing as a consultant, uh, which was, you know, application design. So obviously you've, you started out building a product, which was maybe way too early for its time, but yeah, interesting that you went down that path. What did you learn from that experience? Well, look, I guess there were no good examples. You know, Amazon didn't exist. And so the whole thing had been reasonably expensive for $1995. And we just had no example that it could work. We'd had a crack. It seemed to, um, it seemed to make sense. But there, there weren't any examples where you said, well, you know, those guys have made this work. So what we were doing could, could possibly have worked. So, so we sort of lost confidence, I guess. And, and then we had a whole bunch of people who saw that we'd got something to, to work online. There was actual process there. And so we got inundated with other people asking us to do work for them. And so we, I guess we switched from being sort of product centric to mm-hmm. services, which is a lot safer because you do the work, you get the money. And so we ended up spending a long time being a service provider. But during service providing, obviously you, you would have learned quite a bit because you started out building a product, jumping into the space. What's some of the key things that you learned during the, the time of servicing multiple companies across probably more that? Is it web development space or was it also application development? Mostly okay. web development, but it, it was sort of the, the, the complicated end. So we did we did stuff for, for banks and, you know, uh, it was all interfacing with, with business processes okay. and software in the back end rather than just kind of you know uh, marketing websites so look the, the main the main takeaway from that is that services 
<laughs> delivering services is horrible. You know, most projects, we did a lot of fixed price stuff. So you try and fix the scope and fix the price. And of course, no one's got any idea on what the price should be for the scope and not even experts. And so most of the time, you know, it's a bit of an 80-20. You get 20% of the clients, you make a fantastic profit on and, and they're great clients and the other 80% you lose money on and they're often hand in hand with that. They're terrible to work with. So we got our selection of the 20%. We had a thing called Wine Planet, which was a massive e-retail thing in, in the late 90s. You know, we had a team of six guys constantly working on that on hourly okay. rates. So that, that kind of paid the bills. And we had a few others like that. So and then as we headed into that 2000 period where everyone died, we had enough work to keep going through that, you know, that post-tech rec period. And so we went into 2000 as one of maybe a thousand providers in Melbourne and we came out 2004 as yeah, one of 10. Yeah, so, you know, then yeah, we had a whole, a whole kick on again from that point because everyone realized that, okay, you know, Facebook had happened and Amazon had happened and everyone realized, okay, this mm. thing is real. Who do we turn to? And actually when you looked in the phone book, there was us and five other guys. So, and then we got, we got snapped up by a, a larger company, you know, a couple of years later. So it was a bit over. Yeah, no, very interesting. So before that all happened and that bust happened, did you find it was sort of difficult when you were trying to providing like those fixed price quotes to get customers to understand how to express what they were after? considering it was so early on in like the development and the internet phase. So then you can try and get that fixed price quote because that is still a problem that we see today. Yeah. And that's look that, and that's the problem that we're very much grappling with primary. Yeah. It, look, in the early days, we were, as one of our more educated clients described us, we were a hacker shop. We just made stuff up as we went along. And there was one weekend, I don't know, it was, was sort of towards the end of the 90s where something had blown up over the weekend and I went into the office and I worked with two really good guys who I'm still mates with and, and they're still doing stuff in IT and went in and I sat down with them and just said, look, I'm just not up for people calling me on Sunday night and complaining that their system isn't working. We've got to do this better. You know, we, can, we can't continue to sort of cobble stuff together in the, in, the, in the manner that we've been doing it. And so we looked into the capability maturity model, um, CMMI, and Based on that, we looked at requirements management and requirements development and how you do that properly. And so then we adopted use case, which is really the, the underpinnings of primary. And we worked out how you actually get a meeting of minds with your client before you start cutting code. Yeah, it's the, that's the most important part. I think yeah. we've had a similar experience probably about 20 years later, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah, putting it out there. So we started our uh, journey in, what was it, 2000, I don't even know now, 2008. Yeah, so after you exited and similar thing, we started thinking, oh, let's build some product and we ended up in a service model, working on websites when we evolved into more tech-based stuff. And at the early days, we were just hacking things together as you do, working things out. And yeah, eventually came to the same realization you did is, yeah, we really need to be working with customers, ensuring that everyone's got clarity across processes, across what is really needed within a piece of tech. Because half the time we, we were building things that most clients didn't really need. And just off the back of a napkin, they would design something and, it, and you'd build it. You'd build, we would build what we consider good tech, but if no one's using it, I don't think that's a great outcome. So there's, a, there's many ways you can look at this. And obviously that's stemmed into what you're doing in primary. So 
let's dig into primary. So that was really about solving those challenges and helping design better products and work with customers. So how yeah, did that... I mean, look, the, 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 I guess the, the, the tiny sort of uh, historical overlay that's worth mm-hmm. mentioning is that the industry tried to solve the same problem at the same time with the agile approach. Yes. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I was kind of down on agile and I'm, I'm not really down on it as in negative about it. I'm not negative about it at all anymore, except that I think it was, it's, I always say it's, it's the sort of workman's solution. If you ask programmers to solve something, then agile is the solution that programmers come up with. Where I actually don't think it's, I think elements of agile are, are really worthwhile. But in it, you know, of itself, it's not really a solution. And so, agree. So, primary kind of tries to grapple with that to work in an agile way, in that you can work iteratively, but to try and work out the wider issues before you start anything. Because, as you say, people often would get you to build stuff that was just useless. But really, one of the reasons I exited that original business was frustration for that exact reason. I ended up building a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that was beautifully crafted, but did a stupid job yes. that nobody wanted. And so when I came back to consulting, I just said to, I collected a bunch of clients who, you know, were naturally came from ex-clients from the original business in most part. And, and so I said to them, you know, I really want to just work out what your application is going to do before we do any technology. And I didn't have an army of programmers to throw at it because before, of course, you, as soon as you drag the client in, you wanted to throw them to the uh, programmer so they could start, you know, turning over some money for you. And so in, in this consulting case, I wasn't like that at all. I just said, let's work this thing out. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started doing use case-based requirements models or application models for clients. I did some really good ones. I did a great one for the government, actually, a project that had failed to the tune of a million bucks. And the service provider was a listed service provider. I won't, won't mention any names, but, you know, they just sat there getting beaten up by this huge government department saying, you know, this thing doesn't work. What have you done? And so they ended up hiring me via another agency to go and redesign it all. And so it w- was incredible. For So seriously, they had a million dollar failure for less than 50 grand i did a model of this thing that had to pass government audit practices because it was handling government money and all this kind of stuff and so we got that through and then we used their own internal um, programs to build it for i think it was about two months worth of work and we turned it on and and i sort of said oh well hustle the vista guys see you later i bumped into one of the team in in a bar in melbourne actually a couple of months later i said oh that thing's still working and they said yeah yeah we haven't we haven't touched it (laughs) so that's kind of the story of why i wanted to work this way because if you work the stuff out up front then you can build it and it just works and it does the job properly not not to say that you know in some cases you don't have a really well described business problem like like we had in that case and so you need to iterate so you need to do pick the logical first part do that experience it, see how your customers respond and then and then go again. And and that's where the sort of agile response comes in, I think. But but definitely, you know, there's a lot with the right process, there's a lot you can work out sort of on paper before you start the job. And so with primary, what happened was I was doing this kind of work as a consultant. And I was doing it in Word documents and with a sort of crazy system of then dumping them into Excel spreadsheets to sort of cross-check that everything, you know, matched up and so on. And that was just too time-consuming that as you approach the end of a project, the sort of noise-to-signal ratio went crazy. You just spent a lot of time cross-checking your documents to make sure they were correct. And I 
so I said, well, this, this is already data. So why don't I build a system? And I, so I started hacking some stuff out in the only computer language that I know these days, which is PHP. And so I sort of built a PHP system, but I actually built it as a kind of SaaS thing. I, I built it, you know, a user management system and then I was just one of the users of it and, and I actually put it online and but then I used to use that for my clients so that um, and, and it would make the analysis job crazily much faster so but it was ugly and and so then about 2017 I decided to get serious with it and uh, rebuilt the whole front end in React and that's kind of the genesis of the, of the product you see today. Music to my ears, this conversation, I think, <laughs> yeah, in terms of um, the way you think and what you've learned, very similar to what, yeah, the journey we've been on. It's technology it can be quite easy if you think about it in the right way, you plan it out in the right way. And you, you ask the, all the all the questions up front. I think, um, I think I agree that the agile component that's been bandied around as a solution, I don't believe it is jumping to something agilely without having a really good think about your direction and your outcomes and what the product might be, could be, should be with stakeholders, with everyone getting engaged in the process. I don't think that's a really great outcome unless you have no idea where you're going. <laughs> so there's, there's probably two areas I reckon that, that, it, that where you can't really model. One, one is where you, you've got novel technology. So, yes. you know, you've got some sort of AI thing that's never yeah. been done before. Then, then often you just have to play with the tech to see where it's going to go. Yes. The other one is integrations. Sometimes integrations between big sort of, you know, monolithic existing systems and you try and do models for that. It, it, you can do models of like what's the business outcome, but it's pretty hard to model the processes at a, at a low level often. So sometimes you're better off just starting those. And, and But anyway, sorry, I interrupted. No, 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 no. I think we're, we're on a similar page. Like you're talking about when you're digging into process systems, processes can be defined on paper and visualized and seen before built. That's not that difficult to do. And if anyone says it is, it's just you, you need to invest the time there. What we coined it as uh, be agile in your design and then be a bit more robust and stringent within your delivery models and, and still allow some flexibility. But if you're really agile in your front end design and what that looks like and your processes and spending the time there, that's how we prefer to use agile yeah, up so front. We prefer the more in the managed agile process. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I think we're definitely, uh, I don't know how we haven't met each other after yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> I think we found the same route, yes. just at different times. Yeah. And I'll, I'll pay that on that. So they've already is so DevReady podcast is all about helping non-techs build better tech but what we work through is what DevReady is which we designed five years ago to help clients build better products to solve problems and outcomes in a very similar light so this is a, a meeting of the minds as you might put it so really good to to meet you live on a podcast and just have a bit of chat about how you came to primary yeah yeah okay, look the, the other point about this that early you know that modeling process mm -hmm. that i think is important is when you produce some documentation, I mean, I use the term on paper as well, even though it's kind of in an app, you have to be quite stringent about how you do it so that it's communicatable. And so the primary kind of line is, you know, use the power of stories. We All, all of our stuff creates basically a series of stories. And the, the reason that that works well is you can sit down with somebody, even the most non-technical person in, in the world, and then you can talk them through the model mm -hmm. and because the model is composed of a series of stories, 
the stories work in a simple way, like they've got a, a simple arc and they're really formalized. So you, there's only kind of one way you can do them. Mm -hmm. I, I constantly get clients saying, hey, can you make this change where you can connect all the stories up together? And I'm like, nah, because that just means it's going to be so complicated that no one's going to understand it. And only the guy who wrote it's going to understand it. And so, so there's the two halves. There's the tool that, that allows you to do the thinking, but then there's this communication piece that allows you mm -hmm. to validate and confirm and actually bring in the gold from the client because the client usually knows you know, what they want to do. They just can't express it and they don't have the right forum to have their ideas heard. So that what they'll usually do is, you guys must know this, they'll just repeat the, the thing that they think is important like in six different ways and you're like yeah yeah we got that but yes. how does that fit in how do, how do we make that work in the context and so this storytelling process we call it a walkthrough it really is fantastic and by the end of it you end up sort of building the software in your mind so everyone's built a kind of copy of the of the application in their mind and you can have really meaningful conversations where the totally non-technical founder person might say you know that bit where this happens and then you click that button and it all turns pink or, or whatever and everyone goes, yep, yeah, yeah, we all remember that. We all understand that. And they say, what, what if we this instead? And then, and, and you can have a really kind of in-depth conversation about this application that doesn't yet exist rather than building it, clicking the button and then having this realization three months yeah, later. That's completely wrong. <laughs> that, that, yeah, it's completely wrong and the market's moved on and, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff's happened. So, and it's cost you a fortune. So it's that communication thing that's the really uh, important part. I, I spent a lot of time in big corporates with an analyst who would whip out a telephone book size document that was purposely designed to make that person look clever and be completely unintelligible to everybody else in the room. And so that is kind of my the antithesis of, of what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to make something that everyone can understand. I mean, it's got to be clear and concise. Just trying to bewilder people for the sake of it is useless and doesn't achieve any outcome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's dig in on, on stories because we are trying to help non-tech build better tech. So that's the outcome of what we're doing, trying to do here. Explain that to people so they can start thinking in the mind of a story. So explain how you might carve out a story within an application. I know this is a really, I literally remember being taught to do this when we adopted use case years ago and really finding this a, a difficult concept initially. So if you imagine you, you've got a, a sort of a computer application in front of you, it's kind of a blob and you, and you want to chop it up into pieces somehow. And so the typical one that people use is that they, they pull out all of the interfaces. So they say, okay, well, it looks like this when you're doing this and it looks like this when you're doing this. And then very quickly though you end up with this sort of panoply of, of interfaces and some of them would do two jobs at once and they look different in different contexts and so it's that's a really poor way of decomposing something another one is you try and make a list of features so but then again that becomes really difficult to work out well is that a sub feature of that or is a feature on its own or so these are kind of the typical methods that people use but they're not particularly effective so the stories, what you do is you say, right, okay, let's decompose this application into a set of stories. We call them user flows in, in primary. And the criteria is that a user who carries out a user flow must end up doing something of value to them in the real world. So if they click a button or fill out a form that's not got no real world value, so that 
in itself is might be part of a story, but it can't be a story on its own. So typical ones that I always use as an example would be something like creating an account. Okay, so I, I go to a site and that sells widgets and I need an account to buy a widget. So I say, well, I'm going to create an account. And when I've created my account, I think to myself, right, I now have an account on the widget site. And so that is of some value to me in the real world. So that would probably be a story. And then once you start pulling the, the application apart into stories, it's suddenly, I mean, I know this sounds a bit sort of magical, but it suddenly starts to organize itself in this way. And so, and suddenly the stories start to group together and you go, okay, all those stories are about creating and managing my account. All those stories are about locating the right kind of widget. All those stories are about purchasing the widget and managing my purchase history. And so they, they sort of sort of clump into these, into these groups. And what happens is then you, you notice, usually you start off doing the, what we call the hero story. So you the stuff that, that everyone wants. Okay, you need to be able to buy and you need to be able to search using AI and you need to be able to blah, blah, blah. So you've got like three really strong stories that the client is really hung up on. But then having documented those, you'll suddenly realize, ah, there's all of this sort of space in between that needs to be done to support that, that hero pathway. And so when you're making decisions about, okay, I want to, we want to, you know, do a minimum viable product and, and I've got these five stories I want in it, then you, you realize that, yeah, actually story one and two need all the supporting stuff to work. And so actually we should make our minimum viable product maybe only story one and two. I've, I've gone on too long now. I'll stop, I'll stop and let you ask me another question. That's a good way to explain it for people to understand how to define what the software should be doing as well as then what's the critical thing to get some value for a user as an MVP initially. Yeah, I think yeah. where you lean to from a story perspective, I somewhat agree and, and somewhat disagree with the, the UI playing note lock becoming complicated. It can be convoluted, but I think if it's done right, it can work and paint a picture for the user. And I think, but getting an understanding of what the outcomes are within that context of, yes, this is the journey. I think that's yeah, pivotal to any application. Using all three at once can give you a visual appeal UI Features and functions are really not really good to anybody other than the developers and people putting this together. In the end, a user needs an outcome, which is why the stories are, can work quite well if they're done right. Because if they're not done well, then if no one's communicating correctly, the clients don't get them, it can be, can be a little bit gray. So I think it's an area that you need to experience and work in quite a bit to get it right for the users and all the stakeholders within the conversation too. Yeah, no, look, I, t I, I totally agree on the interface thing. I, I, what I meant was that interfaces as the organizational structure are, are not great. Uh, yes. In fact, pri yes. primary, it, they, they play a huge role in primary in that when you mm -hmm. create a, a story, it, it's a series of steps and each step is expected to have an interface. Mm -hmm. But the, the interesting thing is that, that the same interface will occur in multiple stories, which, which kind of reveals how it's got to come together, be, be responding in context. Mm -hmm. So, whereas if you make the interface the node at, on which everything else is, you know, hanging, then it's very hard to explain. But, so my word picture for people is, um, imagine you've got a, um, a city grid of intersections and you, you, you give them directions by giving them a list of intersections that they're going to go through. It's sort of rather than describing <laughs> yes. how they're going how to they travel, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of like us about, yes, you need to sort of, 
know what the intersections look like, but but um, but just giving somebody a list of them and explaining mm-hmm. that when you're going to school, you might go through this one and this one and this one, and when you're going to the work, you'll go through that one, that one, that one. Doesn't doesn't really work as a as a um, communication model. Putting this out there, so it's a, it's a story describing the, the the journey of the customer or the the person, the user through the application and then beyond that it's a process which breaks it down into each component this is what i'm gathering in my mind and then in the process you've got the ui comes into that on top which gives you that whole flow from start to finish to complete one outcome one task for a user is that the page that we're on right now yeah yeah so we mm-hmm. so that the, the story you know makes this kind of lightweight scaffold yeah. that it, it sort of mental scaffold and then you connect the detail to that mm-hmm. so it's a good, a good example is if, if you take one of those guys who remembers packs of cards, mm-hmm. how they do it is they, they take a group of you know five cards or whatever and, and then they make up a little story about about those cards and then they remember all of these little stories they've made up and, and that's how they can say ace of spades and blah, 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 and they can reel off the whole deck of cards because they just remember the stories. So mm-hmm. stories in your, your brain is set up to remember stories. So by creating a simple story scaffold where, where you know the user starts off in, in one state and goes through a series of steps and ends up at their happy place at the other end, you, your brain immediately makes a kind of a record for that. And, and then you can say, okay, and this is kind of what they see as they go along. And you go, okay, bang, bang, bang. You, your brain stores all that. And you say, okay, now we're going to apply some rules, you know, because if it's Tuesday, you know, they can't do that, but they can do this. So you put some rules in on the steps and so your brain still remembers the story and then it can start to hang all of these bits of detail on there, which is why, you know, the story has to be kept simple and you don't want to tell a story where, so this example I use is a rat, rabbit's getting out of bed. So the rabbit gets out of bed and uh, it's raining. So it goes back to bed. And But if, if it's a hot day, then it goes early. And, you know, if you have too many conditions in the story, then the story, the, the arc of the story is lost. Mm-hmm. So the story is kept very simple. So it has one straight arc, and then you put all the conditional information in rules that stick to that story arc. On the first review with a non-technical person, you tell the story, and they go bang, their brain makes that scaffold, and then you discuss all of the detail, you look at the interfaces, you talk about the rules, you talk about what information is coming in and out of the application, and by the end of it, um, like everyone can have a, a fully technical discussion about how that's going to work mm-hmm. because they've got that that original scaffolding in the, in their brain to hang it all on. Yeah, I think um, bringing all the stakeholders on board is is important to get success. And from the, what you're describing as a, a story context, example might be as an admin, just making this up as I go, I want a report that comes out to me on a Friday morning that outlines how many users have been in the platform, how many sales we've had, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just an example of an outcome we're getting to a story. And then how do we get to that? All of a sudden we have to, from a technical perspective, start calculating in the system and tracking the number of users and number of subscriptions, et cetera. So, and how we send out that email, but the user doesn't need to care about that and the key stakeholders, that becomes something that the developers or the engineers will put together, but they will wanna know these are the outcomes. How you get me to these outcomes is really up to you. And there's some rules in place that we can discuss. And I think it just simplifies the conversation to what are we getting from the platform in pieces rather than this whole big extravagant solution that no one really gets a handle on. 
Yeah, 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 totally. It's and it's interesting that you, you, yes, you used the example there in the in the format of uh, an agile user story in terms of you know as a something I do this to yes. get this outcome. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. I, I was looking at that methodology. So primary is a little bit different from that in that stories have steps in them, so they're a little, they tend to be a little bit longer than that. So um, it's more of a journey than I would imagine. Yes, get it. Mm-hmm. They are actually they are really um, their use cases in reality. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. So, so they they have a series of steps in them, mm-hmm. and so the interesting thing about that user journey, uh, so user story format, the you know as a I do this mm-hmm. to achieve this, is I was watching quite a few years ago, people grappling with mm-hmm. getting the extra detail into them, and then I was seeing people proposing, uh-huh. you know. I can't remember what the word they used, but they had some new name and sort of extended user stories. And then they were sort of starting to hook up, um, you know, um, uh, business object designs or form designs or interfaces and this sort of thing. And and I was like, uh, okay, so, so this is kind of interesting in that that the um, uh, that that format I I believe is sort of too compressed. Um, it, it probably works really well uh, in those situations, like I was talking about, where you've got a sort of a novel technology and you're not quite sure what the outcome's going to be. Yes. But where you're pretty certain of, you know, and everyone can imagine how a thing is kind of going to work within within current technology, then then you know you really can have a few more steps to it than just a, as this I do this and this happens. You know, it's a bit short. So so you can have a sort of slightly longer kind of interaction with the with the future application, um, and that allows you to capture that stuff. That stuff that you know, like if you're doing a ticketing system, you probably know that it's got to have a special code and need the guy's name and the date of travel and I don't know what you know the sort of stuff. There's a lot of stuff you do know in advance, and so rather than throwing a half-baked thing at the developer and then having them come back and say, oh, what do I need to know about this? You can get that simple stuff done up front. Yeah, and you shouldn't be throwing anything half-baked at the developer. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's some of the, the biggest issues people stumble across is they don't really document or think about the processes because in the end, software it can be overly complex, but in its little bite-sized pieces, it doesn't have to be complex at all. Um, like I said, if you go into something that's um, a little bit more uh, niche or something that had never been done before, that's when complexity comes about. But if it's a process-driven system, you can do 99% of the thinking up front. You may have some tiny tweaks as you go through the process, but you can do that thinking up front. Invest the time there. It's going to save you a lot of heartache when you actually develop this thing. Because you'll have a roadmap for your developers to build it, not just think about how we're going to deliver this during the process, and that's where a lot of people come unstuck. Yeah, look, the, the other the other good thing you can do mm-hmm. is you can involve the other disciplines like the UX and UI yeah. and even CX people because they also can understand the model and actually they can have real epiphanies. Uh, I mean, I. I would say I've never done a project using this methodology and in fact using Prime itself where we didn't do a walkthrough with, with the team and somebody made a realization that scrapped, you know, a large chunk of what we'd already done or, or altered it in a way that if we had built what we originally had, we would have been scrapping it and rebuilding it. Mm-hmm. So you can really get the the UX people can look at it and go, well, hey, why are we doing all of this? You know, this is going to be confusing as hell. Why don't we do this instead? And, and you go, oh, of course. And, and if we ever had built the application to then have that realization, you know, it's to double your cost on that part. Oh, of it. it could be, um, it killed the whole project. We've seen it before <laughs> where you've built something that's not 
is not what you expected and not what the customer expects. And in a, in a startup environment or within a business model that's got a budget, there maybe is no budget coming next and uh, yeah, it can kill the project. So it's been done many a times and yeah, we've seen it far too often in our little world and I'm sure you've seen a lot of that too. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. So yeah, yeah, so that it's that being able to discuss things up front and, and bring in all of the various disciplines and, and in fact, like, bring the developers in as well i've had the similar thing where you know we've torturously designed something and then one of the dev guys has said you know there's a library that kind of does that but not quite like you've done it but if we if you changed it to do it this way we could build a whole chunk of this application without building any of that and you go oh okay well let's do that so you know you really you really can get value out of out of everybody and and some of the pushback i get from more agile devotees is is that it's a throw it over the fence model like, like like you've got all the business people having a big business party on one side of the fence and then they throw mm-hmm. it at the developers and really it's not that at all you can you can bring the developers into a modeling environment and they can add real value and then when the handover comes it's less of a here's this thing go go stop talking to me and go and build it there like already part of the project and already ready to go you've got to have opinions and insight from everyone in the team like you said, the developer can suggest something that can either make something easier or to f- tell you that there's too much effort involved in and not enough value being returned for something, mm-hmm. which can change the way you need to do things or change the approach. And the same with the UX and designers and yeah, or everyone in the, every facet of a team that you need. I think it's um, a little bit crazy to think that you'd throw something really basic at a development team hoping to build it and not have everyone on the same page. The project requires UX, UI, requires business it requires customers it requires development it requires what after support even looks like you want to paint the picture early if you can bring the more people you can bring into the conversation and the way you're approaching it through primary keeping it clear so everyone understands it is is the most important part if you've got some stakeholders that are lost to what's going on because it's too technical or it's whatever it might be then you're not going to get the outcomes up front and you're going to get stuck in delivery and then delivering something that doesn't meet all the stakeholders' needs and maybe is done in the wrong way. So I think the model you're working with makes a lot of sense to us. It's a similar path in thinking to what we did with DevReady, which is all about getting ready for development, which is what you're doing, right? You're getting ready to develop something. You're not just jumping into something off the back of some business requirements and hoping for the best. And yeah, I think... You what... even write DevReady somewhere on your website as one of the outcomes. <laughs> I love it. It's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's well, it's actually, sometimes yeah. the outcome is is no dev. I mean, sometimes <laughs> the, the answer is to explore the idea and, mm. and decide that actually we, we shouldn't do this. And, and so that, that can be a huge saving as well. Yeah, and that's uh, still a very positive outcome. It's a great outcome because uh, it's better to spend 20 grand getting dev ready and cans and canning it than spending 200 grand on a product that no one's going to use. So, yeah, yeah similar philosophy done that there. with clients as well. Mm. Yeah, in terms of um, designing and stopping, is is it's been done before, and I think it's a great outcome for everybody. I think where how do you talk to customers about this? Because from our perspective, it's clear to us in our mind how we do this, and I think yeah, what you're up to, we do things slightly differently, but similar thinking over in terms of getting to outcome right. But when you talk to customers and bring them onto a platform like Primary, how do you engage with them, and what's the sort of conversation? Yeah, look, that that is difficult because you've got the you know unknown unknowns uh-huh. problem that they they're not across this, so they you're talking to them about a bunch of stuff that they haven't dealt with before. But the biggest problem really at the moment for us is the sort of level of clutter in the in the market. 
there's a lot of solutions that do various things around you know digital product and digital product management and digital product design that don't really you know that are work in other parts of the process, there's very few systems that actually grapple with the thing that we're doing. And it, it makes it very difficult. We've actually got clients who say that we've been doing a review campaign on, on uh, you know, one of the Gartner products recently, and we got a software guy in Colorado, actually quite, quite significant company. And, and their comment, you know, they said, what, you know, what are the alternatives is one of the questions in the questionnaire. And and they, the guy said, mm, actually, there aren't, really aren't any. So we've got a bit of a problem there in, the, in that we're sort of, there isn't a category that we fit neatly into, but we do link processes that people are already carrying out. We, we find that most people are sort of ideating in Miro and then they're managing stuff in Jira, yes. for example. Yeah. And you know, there's, a, there's any number of, of alternatives and there maybe they're doing stuff in product board before this process starts to decide what they're going to work on mm-hmm. and but the middle bit in between is really hacked together in most cases and that's where we, we kind of sit in between that high level ideation and mm-hmm. and that low level uh, assigned tickets in jira mm-hmm. you know the primary really sits beautifully in, in the middle there mm-hmm. so how do we sell it to people well we sell it through you know content marketing uh-huh. and through viral people who worked with it carried into new workplaces and then it goes from there how do we describe the problem we're solving in lots of different ways and with varying levels of success i'd have to say <laughs> still a yeah, work in progress it's an educational process it is and i think that's what we do as well it's the same it's very similar thinking the way we define it is getting clarity across stakeholders i think that's really important but also it's a risk mitigation process it's it's really about reducing the risk on a project there is so much risk in building technology it's not funny and i think people walk into it unblind off the paper back of a napkin hire a development team and go for it they just don't realize what they're getting themselves into just getting really clear at the start can save you uh, endless sleepless nights off the back of building something that's that's not right, uh, that's not going to work, that's not going to serve the customer in the end. And yes, we do. We will iterate through a project. Hundred percent agree, and that will happen across any project. But if we can reduce the iterations in a project, that's a massive win. And if you can take one iteration out or two iterations out of a project, that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings. And yeah, I think where you're working in is in, yeah, I agree. It's an untapped area. Not many people are doing it well. I find the challenge that when we work within the model, which is somewhat similar, but different, similar thinking, you need great people managing and running those processes. So it becomes education for whoever those users are going to be to actually work within the projects to manage them. That's probably the gap that I see. How have you gone about solving that problem? Yeah, that's it. really interesting, actually, because when we, in the, in the previous life in the dev company, when we were using use case, it was a massive effort to educate people how to do it. Yeah. And so that's one of the problems that, that I've tried to solve with primary, which is to make it much easier to adopt. And I, I, I can't claim 100% success here. But it still has a, a massive, there's still a perceived you know, massive hurdle to, to getting started. I, mm-hmm. I watch people because uh, I, I do work with, like most of my clients I've never met, but I do work with a bunch that I have met. And it's kind of an interesting process because there is this reticence to get started and a feeling that they're going to do the wrong thing or, or, or it's going like to show them up right? as being a bit silly. Yeah. And instead, so I, I always say to people, look, just jump in because what will happen is 
you'll build your own straw man. You'll, you'll build your own thing that isn't right. And really quickly, like, you know, within the first half an hour, you go, oh, this isn't making any sense. But but having done that will give you the perspective to say, oh, if I did it this way, that'll, that'll work a lot better. And so I found that most successful users have just self-adopted and and sometimes you know i've looked at models that they've built early on and gone right that's completely wacky and i never would have done it that way but uh, it seems to be working for you so carry on yes then what i find is that people tend to that the system tends to bring them around to the the same kind of conventions that i use and so they, they eventually they'll end up doing something that I look at and go, yep, that's kind of how I would have done that too. So so I've tried to solve, to, to answer the question, I've tried to solve it by making the system give you cues and and the kind of the right way of doing it in my mind is the path of least resistance. Makes sense. So yeah, yeah look, at, I, I, like I can't claim my 100% success rate on that. And so we are, we're, we're about to start a big campaign of backfilling that with a, a whole bunch of training stuff. But it, we... Is that funny thing that'll be useful to any 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 SaaS listeners? We did that whole, you know, self onboarding with tip pop ups and all that sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> and then we used to use um, recorded sessions and watch people, and it was kind of like watching someone play play a game whack a mole. They just couldn't get rid of the tips fast enough. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> no one wants to watch those, right? Yeah. No yeah. one wants to get pop ups. No, 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 no. I've read some really interesting stuff about how to design those properly, which we didn't do. Uh-huh. We just sort of made it up as we went along. Yeah. And and I think properly designed, they could probably work. We ended up with a kind of middle zone, which sort of works for ours. We, we did this sort of non-intrusive version that you can ignore and they are they do work to some degree. But uh, but yeah, the, the training thing, I think from my observation, you've got about 15 minutes of someone's time. Uh-huh. So you've got a pre-prime them with information that sets them up to expect what they're going to see, to understand what they're kind of trying to achieve with their first session. And if you can't sort of delight them in some way in that 15 minutes, then it's hasta la vista and you won't see them again. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's probably the, the biggest challenge in a platform that you're working on. I And I get that. I, yeah, being on a similar path journey thinking has been like, how do we train people to do what, people have done for when they're in their 10, 15 years building product, designing product. How do you train that? Someone that, that is the putting the orchestra together. How do we do that? So that's probably the biggest thing that I see is as one of the challenges that you'd face in pla- putting it into a platform. So it's interesting to see how you're also grappling with putting this together within your own platform and technology to serve people, help help them build better product. But I think you're on an interesting path, which is, um, yeah, there is that gap in the market that exists to help people get from big picture thinking to maybe get into more detail before development. 100% agree that is an area that must be tackled because there's so much stats out there that exist of failed projects within corporates, billions of dollars lost within R&D and innovation. It's it's pretty crazy what's going on in the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, I had a, I had a client that actually, um, an interesting woman who lives in Arizona who yes. has written a whole bunch of books on on development and database design and stuff. And she, she's been using the, uh, the product and her statement, she said in a review, she said, they're very opinionated and sometimes their opinions are different to mine. But talking about us being very opinionated because there's sort of some things that, that we won't do because for this exact reason, if you make this, the product sort of a flexible platform, 
that you can you know choose your own adventure to some degree then adoption becomes a lot more difficult and if you're running a team of people and they're all doing it a different way then there's a whole lot of effort that you've got to put into trying to get everyone to you know follow um, your chosen convention so so we've sort of said it in the product we think this is the best way of doing it and we're going to kind of send you down that pathway so that if you stick three people on it they're all going to produce roughly the same kind of output mm -hmm. yeah and i get that because cheater and answer ends up being anyone does their own thing so defining a process to design and create better product is uh, on the same page and i think just to summarize this this james it, it's an area it's a creative area it's an innovative space and it's it's always in a learning experience and journey for consultants that are in it it's always evolving so i think um yeah, the product will evolve over time with customers and only get better over time and produce better and better outcomes. So on if you're talking to someone that's designing a product, what's a couple of tips that they can get started from? So if someone's new to the space, got on a great idea, they believe they've got a great idea, they want to start designing some products, what's, what's a couple of tips that you might advise them to start here, for example? Yeah, well, I've literally done this. This friend come and talk to me and say, oh, I've got this idea. So re recently, I had a, a mate who I surf with, actually, and he's an ex-investment banker. And he's been working for years on writing a book on kind of investment analysis and management. So it pretty, sounds pretty dry. And then it, he decided, okay, he wants to build a SaaS system that implements his methodology and so he said, what shall I do? Shall I go and hire a company to, you know, get them to design and build this? And I said, he'd actually been down that path before with another product, which I helped him on a few years ago. And I said, look, remember what happened with that thing? You know, they ended up using a technology that no one else supported. And then the guy left the company and, you know, just turned into a nightmare. I said, don't go down that path. Build a model of it first. And so I, I literally, like, he's a pretty smart guy. And so I gave him a like, 20 minute uh, course on primary. I said, build it out in this. And then once your ideas have started to kind of, you know, come together, then come back and I'll give you the next part of the process. And so that went on. We went through building a model in primary, reviewing that, getting UX people doing that. And then I finally hooked him up with a bunch of technology people and I, his SaaS product is currently being built in, in Russia, I think, using some. So my advice to people is even business people, start by building a model. Obviously, I'd say start by using primary, but I literally don't know many other ways of, of doing it that a business person can produce a sensible output that can be discussed with other people and, and moves them forward. Most business people's attempt at this stage is, is to just write down their favorite part of the application six different ways and, and then say, what about this? Yeah. Or pick a solution they believe is going to work and generally putting it out there. Most People that aren't technical will overcomplicate the solution or maybe think about it in a completely wrong way from a technical perspective. So it's it, you do need that helping hand, but if you can get out of the technical and into the process and what the user cares about and is going to see and that, that experience they're going to have in a software solution, that's where the energy needs to be invested. So I think that's some a good advice there in terms of how you might design your product. So James... Talking about primary, I can go on all day because we're on a similar page, but uh, we might we might cut it there. And thank you for joining us on the DevReady podcast, talking about your experience building a product that helps people build better technology products, which is really what it is, right? So yeah, thank you, James, for joining us. If anyone wants to find out about you, how can they learn more about you and the product primary? Well, just go to the primary website, which is primary.app. Perfect. And uh, we'll mm. share that out in the show notes. Thank you, James. Really appreciate Thanks, your James. time. Well, it sounds like we need to catch up for a sales call after this. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Cheers, Josh.
Thanks, mate. Cheers. Bye. Thanks, Bye. guys.